Well, hello and welcome to the AC Podcast. My name is Troy. I'm super happy to be back with the team. Uh, back from my trip to California. I am here this morning with Steve and Wes. Good to see you, gentlemen. How we doing? Good. Not back from California good, but <laughs> I think I'll... Uh, or maybe back from California is bad because you wish you were in California. So I'm back from my condo and uh, doing well. Good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm doing great. But I got to say, like... I was a little jealous to hear that Troy got to watch Terry Crews do the pack dance. Like, that's one thing that I really want to see. I don't know what it is. It's just, I've seen it in America's Got Talent. I've seen it on Brooklyn Nine-Nine. But I'm just like, that's one of those things in a weird way. I just want to see it in person. (laughs) It is both a marvel and a very uncomfortable situation to be a part of. Because, I mean, it's kind of like an eyes up here sailor moment. But your eyes are staring right at his pecs the whole time you're like that's fantastic and i'm also very uncomfortable <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly right but uh so uh today completely unrelated we're gonna hop into um <laughs> we're gonna hop into our topic for today and we're gonna actually be looking at the scripture today very specifically very intently and we're gonna be looking at some specific verses in the bible that we've just seen through through life through ministry they sometimes get used out of context or they don't get used in their fullness. And so the goal of today is to really just take a a zoom in lens, a very hermeneutical look at these verses and how we can potentially be missing things in our application when we misinterpret the scripture. So Steve, why don't you, you know, why don't you get us rolling here today? Yeah. And as we get started, I guess I just want to put it out there that, you know, I know this can be a bit sensitive sometimes because for some people, like these are their life verses, right? And in a sense, I what was it, Wes? Your wife put it in a kind of an interesting way. What was it with the sledgehammer? Yeah, uh, when we were talking about sort of this concept, and I was running by my wife saying, like, what are some of the verses you think you hear around that we could probably address? And she said, as the preface after we talked about a few, to make sure you're not taking a sledgehammer to someone's. Uh, mug collection you know they open up their cupboard and they got mugs with all their favorite bible verses on it make sure that when you address these bible verses you're not just you know making them feel like they have to chuck those out the window after you're done you can still have your favorite verse on your coffee mug um you might just be thinking about it in a different way after the podcast than potentially you thought about it before right right yeah awesome yeah so we want to kind of take a as positive uh, of a spin on that. Maybe spin is not the right word, but we want to approach it from a positive angle. So why don't we get started then? Um, probably the one that I hear most often is Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, right? The plans to the plans to prosper you and not to harm you, to give you a hope in the future, that, that sort of a thing. Now that is, I've seen it hung on plaques in bathrooms. I've seen it on those mugs and those kinds of things. And a lot of people take comfort from that, the 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 idea that God's God's got me, right? He he is sovereign and he cares for me. But maybe that's not the proper context for it. So Wes, do you want to take a few moments just kind of tell us what's going on here? Yeah, and I think uh, one of the common themes that we're going to see throughout these verses is that you might actually be gleaning 
even if it's not necessarily what the scripture is talking about, you might be gleaning a concept or an idea that's actually true, right? Like what you might be getting from the verse, even if it's not what the original author is intending, could be true. So when in Jeremiah 29, 11, when it says, um, for I know the plans I have for you, and you get comfort from that in terms of feeling encouraged that God has plans for us that will work out according to his good pleasure. I mean, that's true. You'll you'll find that elsewhere in scripture, right? Uh, Romans 8 says that, that um, God works out all things that are good for those who love him. So it's not like that's a false concept. But if we're looking at Jeremiah 29, 11 specifically, it's in the context of the Babylonian exile. And so if we're reading this for what it is intended to be understood to Jeremiah's audience and then, you know, us taking it in for uh, application, that's what's going on historically. Just in case, you know, there are listeners who are joining us for the first time. Maybe there are people who are not very familiar with the story of the Babylonian exiles. What's basically happening is, you know, by this point, the, the kingdom of Israel has been split into two. The northern kingdom of Israel has been wiped out by Assyria. And now the southern kingdom of Judah, they've also fallen to now Babylon. These guys came in and destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, and there's a whole bunch of Jews now being taken into captivity to live in Babylon. Um, and, and so this is the context. This is a backdrop for this, this verse. Because, I mean, imagine, right? If you were in that sort of situation, what would you want to do? Right? If you're taken captive by an, an enemy force and you're in a foreign land, what do you want to do, right? So what I'm hearing from you guys essentially is that there's there's an aspect of this specific passage where it's important to know the biblical context because it, it kind of changes your fighting stance a little bit. Yeah. It's really easy for us to just say, okay, God's got it all together. It's got it all sorted. And sometimes that can, that can have us actually kind of have a very passive faith rather than one that says, like in this scripture, they're in an exile. And so when you've lost everything and God is still saying, hey, I know the plans that I have for you. Don't get distracted, but also don't get complacent. You got There's still work to be done. I'm still doing work that doesn't remove the struggle. It doesn't ignore the struggle. Because I think that's sometimes where, where we hear it. Yeah. What do you guys think about that? No, I think I'm, I'm really glad you brought that up because you, you put your finger on something really important here that... When the Jews were taken into captivity, you know, you can have two tendencies, right? One is, just like you were saying, people just want to assimilate to Babylon, right? Obviously, this kingdom is way greater than ours. We kind of want to be like them now. Like, we want to become Babylonians, and they want to adopt all of the pagan ways. And then on the other hand, they're are the sort of the loyalists, if you will, like Jerusalem is our home, we're going to fight our way back and, and so on and so forth, right? So in neither of these cases, are you putting your trust in what God is doing? Mm. And in this context, what God is saying is, hey, listen, I know some of y'all want to go, <laughs> that's exactly how God talks, right? Some of y'all want to go back to Jerusalem, fight your way back. Others of you, you want to totally assimilate to Babylon. Don't do that, right? Don't try to go back, just stay there. Right. 
plant vineyards, get married, have children, yeah. just settle in for the time being without assimilating into the, the Babylonian culture, right? Because I have a plan. Yeah. Right? I have a plan for you. That's the context. So when you try to apply it to our context, it's like, well, we're not exactly in captivity and those kinds of things. So that, that may not be the proper context. But like Wes, you were saying, like you might be able to get the same idea from other passages and things like that. Wes, you had something to say? Yeah, and I think um, I hear this verse out of context sometimes applied to like humanity in general. And I think strictly speaking, the promise of Jeremiah 29, 11, when we kind of bring out maybe what could be referred as like a, a pastoral application, something you'd hear in a sermon if this were being preached, it's not actually applying to every human being. In context, it's applying to Israel. But I think for those who are in Christ, this can actually speak to us. Perhaps it could even be extended as part of the invitation to receive Christ. If you come to Christ, he promises you a future and a hope. And outside of Christ, the only Savior, there is no future and no hope, right? We see that in places like John 3.18. And too often, I think Jeremiah 29.11, quoted without context and applied universally, is made to give the impression, you know, God is some sort of like doting grandfather who just wants to spoil us. But I think we can actually take this and in the context that you were outlining, Steve, and have it encourage us for those who do put our trust in Christ, that God does have a plan for us, maybe despite, you know, not being in captivity and exile, but going through times of trial and maybe um, spiritual exile, what what could feel like that, or like a, a yep. uh, to use the language of John Wesley, like the, um, the dark periods of the soul, uh, you know, just times where we're doubting or we're struggling with our faith, a verse like Jeremiah 29, 11 can actually help to encourage us. Yeah. I mean, speaking of that, you, you mentioned Romans 8 earlier, and that's the chapter that I, I love to go to because chapter 8 of Romans is kind of universal in its application, right? So, for example, Romans 8, starting with verse 28 and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. And then there's that famous passage after that, right? What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? And then it talks about, you know, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. So I just, I, I take a lot of comfort. So I take the same comfort from this particular passage in Romans 8 that a lot of people do from Jeremiah 29, 11. Mm -hmm. And again, I don't think it's necessarily wrong to do that from Jeremiah 29, 11, but understanding that context, I think is, is really key. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're exactly right, Steve. And I think the, the, there's an equal danger of taking Romans 8, 28 out of context in a similar way as Jeremiah 29, 11, you know, the promise that the nation of Israel would be restored, but very few of the exiles lived to see the fulfillment of that prophecy. 70 years later, most of them died, you know, without seeing the future that God had planned. But I think we can look at somewhere like Romans 8.28 and see that the future and hope we have in Christ 
even though it might not be guaranteed that things will go well for us in this life, at least not that we can foresee, for most believers throughout history and in the world today, the world is, you know, a cold and a dangerous place. So in fact, the the promise outlined in Romans 8.28 is specifically that, like you said, even though believers will face all sorts of dangers and persecution, you know, it's in verse 35 of that chapter that talks about the trouble and the hardship and the persecution and the famine and the nakedness, um, Christ will never abandon yeah. them. So in this life, believers have hope because of the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. But the future and the hope and prosperity that God has planned for believers will fully be realized only after this life of suffering is over. That takes us really nicely into the next verse that we're looking at in the famous Philippians 4.13, used by athletes everywhere. Steph Curry actually has this on his shoe with Under Armour. You see it in... Like you see it on in Instagram, you see it on in people's and, you know, it's an interesting thing because I remember even for myself, like in, in my own in my own walk, I can do all things through him who strengthens me, which is is it's really interesting because to a to a matured person, you just look at that scripture verse that that gives me a very broad outlook on what God can is allowing me to do. So. That that takes into question, you look at some, maybe there's political leaders, world leaders who say they have a faith in God. We've seen this verse used to justify some pretty horrible mm. things, some, you know, pretty terrible decisions that have been made. And and so as we dive into this, I think it's so it's so important for us to have a study time. Just as we're we're kind of getting a little bit deeper into here, it is so important for us to have a, our own study time and not just be doing the quick Google search, you know, because moments like these, you're not the only one who's using that verse. And I think it's really important to point that out as we continue going forward. Yeah, that's a that's a really great point. I think this really shows that theology matters as much as our culture would like to think. In, in fact, I had a student in one of the online classes who happens to be a registered nurse. And when his colleagues found out that he was studying theology, as he told me the story, they all kind of cocked their heads and asked him, why would you study that? As if it had no relevance to anything, um, especially in their line of work kind of a thing. Never mind that nursing is actually a very Christian profession in, in terms of its history. But they were saying, yeah. why would you study that? But I mean, I think what you were saying, Troy, really kind of shows, yeah, theology matters and reading the Bible correctly matters, right? I mean, how many uh, incidents have we seen where somebody twists scripture and, and misapplies it, right? Mm. Although with this one, Philippians 4.13, you know, most of the time, it, I mean, yes, it can be used to justify some pretty horrendous things, but I think more often we see some pretty benign things where, you know, at sporting events, right? Uh, cheerleaders with the little placard with that verse written on it, I can do all things through him who strengthens me kind of a thing. Um, Wes, you were saying that this verse was um, something of a donation thank you letter, right? Just the way you put it really kind of stuck with me. What do you mean by that? Yeah, Philippians, the letter of Philippians is believed to basically be a thank you for the supporters of the church in Philippi who are financially supporting 
Paul. Mm-hmm. So the context is that Paul is probably in Rome during the reign of Nero. He's probably under house arrest, and he's writing a church community who has been supporting him up until this point financially. And it's basically a thank you. He's saying like, hey, guys, I'm, I'm really appreciative of what you're doing for the ministry of the kingdom of God and specifically what you've done for me. And so he writes to these Christians, and in that, he gives this note of encouragement because there's this context, not unlike what we were talking about before with the Jeremiah passage, of persecution, of like trial and struggle. Not only is Paul in under house arrest, but the Christians in this the Roman Empire are increasingly more and more struggling with the culture around them. And so Paul writes this in the context, you know, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me in light of a culture that is very hostile. And maybe we can relate to that as we, you know, live in this post-Christian secularized culture, not that we're encountering anything remotely close to uh, what Paul and the early Christians were. But I think in terms of living in a culture that maybe just does not understand where we're coming from and feeling the struggle of being a believer and being evangelistic, but people thinking that, you know, you're outdated, maybe bigoted, and just not on the same wavelength as you. And just as a side note, I think one of the things that I thought of when you were talking, Steve, was that one of the reasons that I think it's really important to get the context right is because unlike the positive application of misapplying a text, I also think we need to be careful not to misapply a text so that it doesn't say something about God that is wrong. Right. Mm. If you're saying, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, therefore, you know, I can bench lift 500 pounds, <laughs> and then that doesn't happen, Faith, fitness. what does that mean? Yeah, that's right. I, I saw, you know, Troy bench 500 pounds the other day. I thought, hey, man, that's a lot of weight. Uh, I'm going to throw that up. No warm up. I can do all <laughs> things through Christ who strengthens me. And I don't know, maybe Christ is not strong enough. I clearly was not strong enough. Nonetheless, right, you you don't want to imply something that's false. So if you have this kind of like wrong-headed perspective that you can just go out and almost triumphantly in some sort of um, name-it-and-claim-it way just power through all of the the roadblocks in your life because Christ will strengthen you, and then you're running into more roadblocks, mm. then you might actually start thinking, well, maybe Christ isn't strong enough to encourage me and get me through this, or maybe my faith isn't strong enough. And that's that's wrong. That's really well said, Wes. In addition to what you're saying, it made me think of a, a verse that kind of goes along with this entire topic where in, in Isaiah 55, 11, this is another verse that is oftentimes minimalized where it says, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Oftentimes I hear very simply, my word, his word shall not return void. And it's used in such a way where I say a scripture, I say a verse, and someone, maybe my context wasn't right, maybe my whatever, but I said the word of God. So because I said the word of God, it's going to do what it was intended to do or what it's supposed to do. And it's almost removing this responsibility, like we're talking about, in using the word accurately 
And so when you're looking at, you know, like the verses, the verse that we just looked at, it's, oh, well, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And I say that, well, even if I get it wrong, his word shall not return void. So some way around, God will sort it out. And I think that's a very immature way to look at how the Holy Spirit works. Like we can't just mm-hmm. go and say, walk around in error and then just say, oh, the Holy Spirit's just cleaning up after us, picking it up, that sort of thing. Like, that's a very, very immature way to look at things. Like, yeah. I wouldn't allow my kids to do that, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. If my daughter was running around making messes and she just said, oh, it's okay, mommy will clean it up. I would have to correct that behavior very quickly. Yeah. Because it's a misunderstanding of who your mother is. It is dishonoring and can actually create a riff in the relationship. Yeah, that's a, that's a fantastic point, Troy. And I'm reminded of the whole Old Testament story you know, of the people of Israel. And in fact, I would say what you're describing there is actually spiritually rather dangerous because in mm-hmm. a sense, you're treating God like this impersonal thing that you can manipulate, right? So if you say these things, then God has to do this, right? And in fact, that was the attitude of a lot of the the neighboring kind of countries around Israel where, you know, they would make a sacrifice to whatever God or goddess that they worshiped, and then they expected to get something in return. And that's why God told over and over again to the people of Israel, don't do what they're doing. Don't treat me like a cosmic vending machine. I'm not going to be manipulated by you. I am sovereign, right? I I am, in a sense, I, I don't want to put, you know, words in God's mouth in this way, but I think it's fair to say that God was telling them, listen, I'm not just some thing you can manipulate. I am a person mm-hmm. in relationship with you, right? So when we kind of do this sort of, you know, like you know, my, the word will not return empty. So God's, God has to do this. That's, I would even go so far as to say that's spiritually dangerous. So I think that's a really good point, yeah. Troy. Mm. Now I'm wondering what would be in a spiritual vending machine? What kind of things would I, <laughs> what kind, what kind, what flavor of chips would I get from a spiritual vending machine? I think there would be um, fruit. Yeah. D- <laughs> there would be, there would be fruit. It, it's true. Um, and maybe chia seeds or hemp hearts or something. Um, now, just, just to piggyback off of that. And then I think um, we'll go to the next passage. Uh, when you were talking, Troy, what it made me think of was that the emphasis of this passage is not on the me, it's on Christ. Yeah. And so Christ is the one who strengthens us in the face of both difficulties and blessings. And Christ is the one who receives the glory. You know, yeah. one of the passages that kind of reminds me of this is, is 1 Peter 4.11, who says, whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Christ, God is more glorified when we are content in trials than when we are content with blessings. Yeah. And so Philippians 4.13 isn't just for Christian superheroes who are trying to do, you know, um, it's, it's not just for Steph Curry. It's for every child of God in every situation of life, especially the tough ones. So no trial or tragedy is too hard to face, not if you have Jesus yeah. who can do, who can strengthen you in all things. I, I think that is the application that might not be that far from a wrong application, but when we kind of shift where the emphasis is, it really shifts how our mentality is going into an application like this. Why don't we go on to the, the next verse, Matthew 7, 1. 
Steve, why don't you why don't you tell us what Matthew seven one is about, um, and maybe uh, Troy and I can uh, can critique that and, and judge you a little <laughs> bit on your answer. Yeah, that's right. So for those listeners, if you didn't kind of really catch what Wes is saying, Matthew seven one that's uh, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, part of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and it's that very famous verse that says, "Judge not, lest you be judged." Right. And um, this one, actually, interestingly, is not misused only by Christians. In fact, I I would say this one is almost, well, more often misused by non-Christians to critique or criticize the behavior of some Christians that they deem judgmental. Right. See, Mm -hmm. I feel like this is one of like one one of five Bible verses that non-Christians probably know. Yeah, judge not, right? Yep. Um, but if you actually put that into context, it's actually not about a prohibition on judging per se. It's actually uh, about hypocrisy. Yeah. If I just read it here from ESV, uh, English Standard Version translation here, judge not that you... God's favorite version. Sorry. <laughs> I said that's God's favorite version. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. I've heard uh, a fellow pastor say, you know, the English Supreme Version. So I'm just like, okay, I'll I'll roll with that. Supreme um, version. Yeah. So here we go. ESV, Matthew chapter seven, verse one. Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So this is not about don't judge, period. This is about judge rightly, right? This is about how to judge. Jesus is concerned here about hypocrisy. Don't do it hypocritically. When you've got this mm-hmm. beam in your eye, don't try to take out the speck in your brother's eye. First, get your own house in order. Take that log out of your own eye. Then you will see clearly to, t- to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So this is about, again, hypocrisy, not about a blanket prohibition on judging. And what I love about it, too, is it's not even just like the run-of-the-mill hypocrisy, like you didn't realize. It says the plank in your eye. You are fully aware of your hypocrisy, and yet you are judging. That is really what it's coming down to. It's, it's interesting how it's worded, and, and, and it's not ta- I don't think we've talked about it enough. You're looking at the speck in someone else's eye. The chances are they're, they're just sensing an irritation. They don't even fully, fully understand what is in there, right? Like when it's just something small, you're like, oh, I don't, what is this? I don't know what it is. There is... There's this level of it that I'm like, I don't even fully understand what I'm doing. And so for us to be fully aware of something we are doing and then go after someone who we may, it, it's almost opportunistic where it's like, oh my gosh, there's someone else I can judge. And they're not even fully aware of what they're doing. This is going to help. It's very, it's very, very strange, but we do it so often. But that's just it. It's like, if you're judging someone, and you know full well that you are living in sin. Like, let's talk, let's talk church for a minute. Like, you know full well you're struggling with pornography, but then you go to a youth ministry and you, these kids are talking about 
references in their music and you get start getting on them about like you guys you don't even listen to the music you're talking about or you don't even listen to what they're talking about in music you don't hear the words and you're glorifying these rappers or these artists and their bands and da 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 but you go home and you're struggling with pornography and you know you're struggling with pornography to me that is probably the best example i could give and it's not saying you shouldn't address what these young people may be listening to but the truth is, more often than that, they're not aware of it, but you're not dealing with your own stuff. And so this is where, where I really think it takes power out of the, what the scripture is trying to say, because there, it isn't coming from a rooted, honest place. Yeah, and I think in Matthew 7, uh, Jesus explains that judging is a lot like measuring. So our, our culture still makes this comparison. In fact, by portraying justice, you know, the balancing scale— uh, the idea of being like, well, you have justice, you have injustice, and you put uh, more justice on one end of the scale, and, and it balances out. Well, with poetic parallelism, Jesus tells his hearers to judge with a fair scale. So rather yeah. than the unfair scales they experience regularly, he's saying judge with things like integrity and empathy instead yeah. of, like you said, uh, Steve, hypocrisy. And actually, um, you, you quoted like the the, the follow up, Troy, in terms of the parable of the man with the the log in his eye judging his friend with a speck in the eye i think you know we might miss comedy in the text because we're just reading it i think jesus is actually telling somewhat of a joke yeah i think because the term in the original language is literally like a log like this guy is walking around and he has a log stuck in his eye yeah like the the image that's invoked is i think supposed to be funny and and yeah. packs a punch you know imagine the scenario that Jesus presents. You have one man who has a splinter and the other guy is like, literally he has a two by four taped to his head. <laughs> like that's what's going on here. And yeah. then for that guy to be like, Oh, Hey, you got something in your eye. Yeah. Yeah. Like, Wait, exactly. yeah. What? What do you mean? I have something in my eye. You have something in your <laughs> yeah, eye. Yeah. Right. So Jesus is talking about, he's talking about like empathy and integrity. And maybe even we could throw in the, the word virtue there too, rather than hypocrisy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I am reminded of that um, scene from Ace Ventura, Pet Detective, where he goes to this party. Which one? <laughs> yeah, the first one, actually. Um, <laughs> that, which, by the way, was my favorite one. But uh, he goes to this party, and he's being goofy, right? He, Ace Ventura does what Ace Ventura does, and he's got, like, I think it was, like, asparagus or something like that. And these things are massive things hanging out of his upper teeth oh, yeah, or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And it's like... Do I have something in my teeth? It's, all, it's almost like that. This is a bit of an aside, but I think we sometimes miss that Jesus actually had a sense of humor, right? We kind of, we, we kind of miss it. We always think of, if you watched all those like Jesus movies, you would think that he was this really dry kind of a character, but no, he really Shameless enjoyed plug. life. <laughs> Shameless plug, except for The Chosen. Like I, I started rewatching mm -hmm. it again yeah. and I love, yeah, just, I love how it is, you know, truly portraying Jesus as a, as a, as a person, you know, who had jokes, who had moments with his mother. It's like, mom, like, I don't want to do that, yeah. <laughs> but please, Jesus, you need to make this happen. Okay, mom, you realize you are helping me kickstart all of what is going to be essentially a very right. painful journey. Right. But that's, that's exactly it. And I think sometimes like it, we do that, we do that even with other believers though. Right. Mm where we all of a sudden pull, take away their humanity. And I think this is the very important thing about this, you know, uh, judge not to be judged, because even as Christians, we'll be like, well, I, who am I to judge? I'm imperfect. It's just mm -hmm. like, no, you, th 
that that's exactly why if anyone else is going to come and speak the truth of the word in a healthy context, it is supposed to be you. But you can't, if you're not going to do the work to get the log out of your eye, then ultimately you're not loving those around you instead of just being like, oh, well, I got, you know, not me. I got a log in my eye. That's not what the passage is saying. It's also not saying like remove yourself and because you got a log. It's an invitation. Hey, I care about that speck in that person's eye just as much as I care about the log in yours. But you're in a position with them as a non-believer to actually have that log removed because you know that I can remove it, that I remove it. They have no idea how they're going to get that speck out of their eye. Yeah, I think that's exactly right, Troy. We shouldn't use Jesus's warning against hypocrisy as an excuse to absolve us from actually judging in a way that, you know, might be declaring unpopular truth, but might be actually in and of itself an act of love, right? In the end, Jesus is the advocate we need and long for. He is just, he is the just justifier. And we're called to imitate Christ. He doesn't turn a blind eye to sin. Instead, he sees it, right? He sees those people, and then he takes the judgment we deserve so we can stand justified and live under his wise rule. And as as Martin Luther said, you know, beggars showing other beggars where to find the bread, we point out others' sin in a loving and gentle and respectful way. But ironically, this passage in, in Matthew's gospel biography is telling you to judge. He's just telling you to make sure that you're judging in a way that's appropriate to representing Christ. You know, interestingly, in Galatians 6, especially like within the context of a church community, Paul says, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. So we are actually called to hold each other accountable. Um, In fact, uh, this might be a good segue into the next one, because in in the Gospel of Matthew, in its more immediate context, there is, like, Jesus expects church discipline, yeah. right? Um, I think it's uh, Matthew 18, 20. Is that correct, guys? Um, yep. Yep, that's it. Yeah, that's the one. Eighteen twenty. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Now, this is often used, especially in corporate gathering settings, like on a Sunday morning or something like that, you come to church together. I've seen so many worship pastors use this passage, and I'm like, it's one of those things, right? It's it's not wrong, but I this is not the verse that I would kind of extract that truth from necessarily, um, because the whole context of this is church discipline. So I hope we're kind of starting to get through to our listeners at this point that what really helps in understanding any particular Bible passage is looking at its broader context. So you want to read at least a few verses before this verse and and then maybe even read on afterwards. Because if you read from Matthew 18, verse 15, it says, if your brother sins against you, Okay, this is the context, right? If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. By the way, judgment is needed (laughs) between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two uh, others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to Mm. listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, 
Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. All right, so that's the context. All of a sudden, that verse has a bit of a different tinge to it, right? That's not quite how uh, it's typically used. Well, there are three of us, so Christ is definitely with us right now. There's no question about it. Um, but <laughs> yeah, that, three, that tripart like you, right there. <laughs> that tripartite. Um, yeah, the the context of this passage, like you said, is is about a wayward sinner. And that doesn't mean that you know if two or three are gathering and they're they're praying and they're feeling the presence of Christ, that Christ is not not going to be there. But I mean. Christ is going to be there even if it's just you alone praying. In verse 16, the principle has been invoked of needing two or three witnesses and making an accusation. And what we actually see this it being is Jesus drawing on uh, the Levitical law. In Deuteronomy 19.15, it talks about the case of justice with people bringing accusations against one another. And Jesus is really citing an Old Testament law that said that an accusation from a single individual was insufficient to bring action in a in a criminal case. But if two or three witnesses who agree are sufficient to establish a matter, then that could proceed with, you know, having individuals who can substantiate something that is not a false claim. I mean, we would have this in our law courts today as well. You know, you want multiple witnesses because that's going to validate something. The law in Deuteronomy regulated a human court. And then Jesus applies this to the heavenly court. When the erring brother or sister in the church is confronted by two or three witnesses and then refuses to repent, these witnesses bring the matter before the church. So this is an assurance of Jesus that, you know, there needs to be processes in place that uphold justice. Like we said before, you know, Jesus calling to judge in a way that upholds justice and virtue. This is a very similar tone to it. Just on a basic grammatical standpoint, when you look at just that portion where it says for where, it, it, it really means like in situation that, like it's a conjunction, which means that it can't, that, that verse actually can't stand alone to ha and have proper context. And so when we pull it from itself and we just, if we pull it and separate it from the rest of the passage, you're, that for where is really, really important. It's an indicator that we need to apply it to the rest of what was being said before then, you know, before that happened. And, and I think that's just kind of what we're getting at is like these standalone verses and you, and you don't really need to be, you know, a grammar nerd. I was, that was more or less for people who care about grammar and those sorts of things. Uh, you don't have to have nerd. like... Right. You don't have to have a degree <laughs> in linguistics or anything of that nature. But ask yourself, you know, why why am I not applying all of it? Do I have a like, have I looked at the full scale? Like if I were to just meet Jasmine and I were to ask her, hey, what do you want to be when you grow up? And she just told me that, and I based our entire marriage off of what she said she wanted to be. That would not be a healthy relationship. And I think we we look at the Word of God very often like this. We find the parts that we love, and we we ignore the the other portions that are really the deep work. 
you know, like genealogy. Like I remember when I was first trying to go through the Bible and I get into genealogy and I'm like, man, what son of so-and-so daughter of who and who and such and such and this, that, and the third. And it used to really like, I'm like, God, why is this in here? And he was like, like really what I end up learning is like, it is important to see what God went through to get to Jesus. You know, that is really, really important. There's like, it is important, the chronological aspect of, of what brought us our salvation in person. That's what it did for me anyway. But again, it, it's really, really like, we, we can't just take these quick snapshots because I think we, we lose sight of the, the, really the meat of it all. Yeah. Troy in Hebrew, I think it's pronounced son of who and who. They're hats. And so you got to make sure you get that. That, uh, that. That's one of my favorite characters in the Old Testament. Son I got to check who. the concordance again. I don't know. <laughs> I got you mine know, from Amazon. I don't know what's going on. Yeah, you, you know what, what you're saying, Troy, reminds me a little bit of um, uh, the cheese of truth. Have you guys seen that on Instagram or whatever? No. There's, there's this guy who takes a slice of Swiss cheese, right? And, you know, Swiss cheese, has got, it's full of holes. And he's like, so cheese yummy. of truth. And he slaps it onto a book, and he picks out the words that can be seen through the holes. And then it says something <laughs> random like, your boyfriend hates you, or something like that, right? And sometimes I wonder if that's a little bit like how some of us read our Bibles. Yeah. Foolproof. And a good reminder that the chapter and verse divisions in our Bible, although incredibly helpful, are later editions. That the, the chapters got added somewhere in the 15th century, and then the verse divisions uh, followed after that. And so these are later creations to help us understand the text better. But sometimes I think that works against what the author might have meant in certain instances where there's a flow of the text and we pull it out and put a chapter and a verse yeah. on it. And um, it's easier for us to then, you know, quote it and use it out yeah. of context. In fact, a lot of Bible, you know, software or websites and something like that, they have a feature where you can actually remove the headings uh, chapter and verse divisions and things like that. I know I, I use Logos Bible software and it has that feature. Sometimes it really helps. It's just like it's just one fluid text. And yeah. if you have that feature on your app, I encourage you to use it sometime. You might see things a little differently. Yeah, we'll, we'll definitely, uh, listeners, have <clears throat> some of these extra resources in the show notes at the end of the episode. Um, I think also, too, like as we're um, trying to get through all the verses that we have here today, I think it would be really good, too, to have maybe a just a even quick, maybe a quick moment so we don't run out of time here. What, like, what are some practices that you guys do practically in your hermeneutics, in your reading the Bible? In Because we may have some new listeners on here. We may have some people that have gotten to this point in the podcast. And now they're like, I agree actually with what you guys are saying. My eyes are open. But now reading my Bible, I'm afraid to misread. I'm afraid to get it wrong. I'm afraid to. And again, I will, we will say like, we are not the be all and end all. We are not God. We are not Jesus. We are not the Holy Spirit. And we have the same grace that's given to us that, that you have as well. Um, so don't, don't, don't get lost in the sauce of all of this and thinking that, you know, we're, we're all correct and it only has to be this way. But more or less, we, we seek to help guide and grow and 
in your in your reading, in your understanding of scripture. But again, practically, guys, what is something that you guys do in your study time that helps you get a full picture that may help some of our listeners? Yeah. Um, the first thing I do is first I need to have my expectations straight. I know this is not as practical, but I'll get to the practical part. But the first thing that I want to keep in mind always is that the Bible was written for us, but not to us. Right? Mm. There is the original audience, and I can only get at its original meaning if I understand what that passage meant to the original audience first. So that's why when we went through Jeremiah 29, 11, it's important for us to understand this was actually written to the Babylonian exiles, not to us. So if we're going to get the proper understanding of it, we have to understand what this verse means to the Babylonian exiles, and then I can uh, understand that. And often, um, I mentioned this earlier on a more practical note, what helps with some of that is just keeping that in mind already and just never read a Bible verse, right? As our friend Greg Kokel at Stand to Reason likes to put it, right? In other words, always read it in context. What came before it? What came after it? Um, this is something we've emphasized over and over again. I find that um, like, maybe half of the problems can be solved. Maybe I'm overestimating, but a lot of uh, our kind of mistakes can be kept in check if we just do that alone. Yeah, and I, I think um, one of the things that I make use of as much as possible are commentaries. And the reason for that is that there are a lot smarter men and women who have poured their lives into single books of the Bible and done a lot of legwork that I can then benefit from. And so, uh, you know, commentaries range from very simple to very, very complicated. And so you have to be aware of what you're looking at. Um, for just the regular person, there are some great study Bibles out there. You don't have to get you know, a commentary of a, a particular book. We mentioned ESV. There's a pretty hefty brick of an ESV study Bible that you can get that I know a lot of people have benefited from. And I think doing as much of that, trying to figure out what the context of the original audience is. Now, my preface to that is that you don't need to know that, right? I think what Scripture communicates in terms of its truth. This is what theologians sometimes call the perspicuity of scripture, the clearness of scripture, is that what scripture is meant to be clear on, it's clear on. Yeah. How to be saved and the promise of redemption is clear. And so understanding, say, like the ancient Near Eastern context of Babylonian exile is going to help you, but you don't need to know that to be saved. However, Knowing those things are really going to help you. And actually, I just discovered this last week. Um, I was reading through Revelation uh, with a friend of mine, and we came upon Revelation 21.1, which, you know, talking about the glories of the new heaven and the new earth, just has this throwaway verse that says, and there will be no more sea. And, you know, the person I'm reading with is Australian, and he's thinking like, wait, 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 wait. I love the sea. <laughs> like, wh wh what do you mean there'll be no sea and that's a good thing? And so we dug into this and actually discovered that the sea in an ancient Near Eastern and a Greco-Roman context is associated with chaos. The sea is a dangerous place. It's a place where, you know, a, a seafarer goes out into the sea and there's a very good chance that they might not come back because the sea is un so unpredictable. Yeah. And actually... Uh, the realm of the dead, Sheol, in a, a Jewish context, was also associated with the depths of the sea. Yeah. sea of when Jonah 
is swallowed by a fish and he's brought down, his prayer from the belly of the fish is, save me from the depths of Sheol. Mm. Now, whether he thinks he's dead or whether he's being hyperbolic, there's this understanding that Sheol, the place of the dead, is in the sea. And so when the author of Revelation says that there will be no sea, they're communicating that the new heavens and the earth, they're going to be a place devoid of chaos. Now, we might have just stopped there and went, ah, well, you know, my buddy is an Australian thinking, well, I really hope there's a sea. Um, And, you know, not really understanding and then moving on to the next verse. But when digging into that, we found it, oh, okay, you know, this is communicating something to the original audience that they would have intrinsically understood that we didn't. And by understanding that, we actually glean a more thorough and more uh, full-bodied understanding of the text. And I think those types of things, you know, just pausing at a verse that you might not understand, you know, maybe even some of those genealogies that you were talking about before, Troy, and then figuring out, okay, why is this here? Yeah. And, you know, go, hopping on Google, doing um, some research or grabbing a commentary, that will really uh, enrich yeah. our study. And I think yeah. that sort of a thing can really elevate your view of Jesus too, right? In the book of Revelation, for example, like you mentioned, like the sea, that's where the beast comes out of, right? Um, the, with the, you know, seven heads and ten horns, that sort of thing. That That's where God's cosmic enemies come out. Um and it's also, that's why it was such a big deal, too, when when Jesus was out on the lake, right, on the Sea of Galilee with the disciples, and there's this big storm, and the disciples are freaking out, wakes up Jesus, and Jesus just says, you know, be still, and everything is calm. The disciples freak out, like, who is this guy, right, that even the winds and the waves will obey him? So there there was that, there's an image of, he has complete control over chaos, just like in Genesis 1, when there was this primordial waters, God brings order out of this chaos, right? This is like, this is something only God can do. Like, what is going on here? Who is this guy, right? So it it really kind of elevates your view of Jesus as well, if you learn to read in that way. Yeah, that's, that's, that's well said, Steve. Uh, Some of you said, Wes, don't get hung up on certain things that are not keys to your salvation. That is so, so crucial. Um, but you have to ask, this is, this is where I think uh, really the rubber meets the road for, for believers, right? What is laid out very clearly is our need for Jesus and for, in, in salvation, our relationship with Jesus. But you have to ask yourself, if I am in a relationship, we, I keep using this metaphor, but it's, it's just the way it is, if I'm in a relationship with someone and I may feel like maybe I've been a little bit, maybe I'm feeling a little stagnant. Maybe that spark is gone. Maybe it's because you stopped trying to discover different aspects of that person. And in the, in, when we're looking at scripture, just like that moment, if, we're, if I read this like, oh, and the sea is gone. We, and we cherry pick these things about scripture that we've read at face value. And I say, I don't like that. I don't agree with that. This this goes against new new heaven, new earth. Well, why would the new he, new heaven and new earth not have the ocean? Why would he remove that? For like you said, a person who loves being on the ocean. Maybe that person. I met God when I was out at sea. I was standing before the ocean, and the magnitude of it made me think about myself as a creation. Now, why would God remove that from me? Why would God take that away? The ocean's been in my family for generations, and now you've started because you cherry picked something, and you didn't look at it in context 
what's what's interesting is it's not only your relationship with Jesus that is now being challenged. Now you're going to start questioning whether or not salvation is even legitimate. And I think this is this is something we've talked about before at AC where we we talked about deconstruction. This is something that happens in deconstruction deconstruction that causes people to not rebuild with a healthy foundation is we have cherry picked things in different moments of our life. Some there there could be other reasons for it as well, of course. But what specifically in the context of cherry picking scripture and these moments that maybe I don't disagree with because of where I'm at in my life. Or I didn't have a dad. So the idea of calling God him God the Father actually creates a very painful uh conversation for me. And I'm not ready yeah. to have that conversation. Yeah. We can't bring God down to human level. We cannot. If he is sovereign, because he is sovereign, there is this aspect of his nature and his character that we will never fully understand and we're not meant to because that would remove him from being almighty God. That would remove him from being the creator of the universe. If I could just easily understand him, why would I want to worship him? Because if I if can intellectually figure it out, then that removes any aspect of like, oh, well then, okay, this is, is what it is. I've oversimplified it. But what you were saying, Wes, about not getting hung up on things that aren't the keys to your salvation, I think that's really, really, really important. I think we've got a few more here uh, in the remaining time. Let's go through these real quick. Um, we... we seem to be picking on Matthew a lot, but Matthew 25, 40. Uh, this one, Wes, you brought up. So do you want to just quickly give us a rundown on what's the deal with this verse? Yeah, I hear this one a lot. Um, Matthew 25, 31 to 46 is this beautiful statement of Jesus's concern for the weak and the vulnerable. But it's also an, a challenge and an exhortation for Christians to model the same concern. And then I think the next step is to ask, who are the least of these that Jesus refers to in that passage? Right. So um, so, so the verse there is, mm-hmm. and the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Right. Now, we typically understand that to mean, okay, like the, the weekend of vulnerable, right? People who are ostracized, marginalized, whatever. Yeah, and and that's how I hear it a lot of the time. And I think the, you know, the the right concept that this text is not specifically addressing is that we should be concerned for the weak and the vulnerable and those who are disenfranchised and the needy in our society. That's a true statement, right? But that's just not necessarily what this is talking about. And if you look in verse 45, Jesus uses the phrase the least of these, but in verse 40, he actually uses a more exact phrase the least of these of my brothers. And these two phrases refer to the same group. So the more complete phrase in verse 40 should be used to explain the shorter verse in verse 45. Whatever the least of these is about, it's about the least of these of the brothers. And actually, if you read the broader context, what Jesus is talking about is he's talking about evangelists. He's talking about those who step out with the message of the gospel and go into our society and who may need help, who might need uh, food and lodging and 
that's the the brothers, that's the least of these in this context. So it's not that an interpretation of, you know, helping out the the least within our society is incorrect. It, it That's a proper interpretation, just not necessarily of this text. Jesus is talking about, arguably, you know, you and I, the traveling evangelists, um, who are going out and they're proclaiming the message of the gospel in areas where they might need uh, help in order to do that. And he's saying, you should see my image in the faces of, you know, those who are needy, uh, the, the poor, um, the, you know, Jesus himself was the man of sorrows. But Matthew 25 equates caring for spiritual, um, the spiritual family with caring for Jesus. And so the care in this context is talking about people who are proclaiming the gospel. Yeah, that that was that one was really new to me because uh, until you brought it up, right? Like I totally understood that to mean like how people typically understand this is it's about people who are marginalized, not necessarily people who are proclaiming the gospel, but just kind of this broader view of those who are oppressed, those who are marginalized. So I think this is a good uh, point to bring up that um, I, I know we're talking about you know maybe cherry picking the verses or the the cheese of truth kind of approach or whatever it is. I mean, I, I want to say this with some humility on my part, that this is these are all things that I, I often do, and I try to catch myself in the act as much as I can. So I'm certainly not perfect at it. So hopefully this doesn't come across as, oh, you know, these guys, they think, you know, they, they have it all together. Well, we don't actually, um, but we do try to minimize you know, this sort of out-of-context reading and all those kinds of things. And we're constantly learning about the different contexts and, and those kinds of things, too. So thanks thanks for bringing that up, Wes. Our desire is not, like we were saying before, to have you throw all your mugs with your beautiful verses out the window. We want to help people understand these verses because we want people to read the Bible. We want people to really read the Bible for all it's worth. And get that value. And the only way you're truly going to do that is by understanding what the text is actually saying. And so now we, we've, we've talked a lot. We got one more for you guys, and uh, then we'll wrap this up. We're looking at John 14, 13 to 14, and it says, Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. This is a very powerful and dangerous verse at the same time if used in immaturity because this speaks to some the these personal not not the term vendettas but uh the these uh what what's the term i'm looking for um agenda? yes yes <laughs> this speaks to these personal agendas that we might have for the that we would say is for the gospel is for God. I'm doing this for God. And so whatever I ask, Jesus, I ask you to get rid of all the left wing or all the right wings or make them all like they, this president do this or this <laughs> yeah. prime minister do this. We we ask in your name, God, not ours, because you got the power. And it's 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 very, very dangerous because I think it again, it makes the it puts God in almost like this this it can, you can treat God like a genie or like this chained up person, mm -hmm. a chained up genie who's just has to bend to your will. Oh, 
he well hey sorry gabriel he said in my name like i have to i gotta go like i have no choice no that that's a really good point because at that point notice where the, sh- the where the focus is right it's the focus is not on god anymore the focus is on you and what you can do what i want when I want, exactly. And God just happens to be a convenient instrument by which I accomplish my will. In fact, this, like I said, this verse can be particularly dangerous. Um, I met a lady at my local church who basically hung all of her faith on these verses, saying, you know, this is what Jesus promised. And if God doesn't do this, right? Then this whole faith is bunk. And I'm just like, whoa, 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 whoa. That's a very dangerous way to look at it, right? Um, for so many reasons. We One, we mentioned like, you know, genie who's chained up, that that's how you're treating God for one. This is spiritually dangerous. And also you're hanging all of your faith on this, not on the resurrection, but on all of this, uh, on what it is that you can do through him. Yeah, that that's really dangerous. And we also see this used a lot by um, prosperity gospel teachers, right? To sort of name it and claim it, you know, flab it and grab it kind of kind of a crowd where, yeah, we see it's the power of positive thinking. You you, you put it out there and it's, you know, God, God is going to reward you kind of an idea. On that point, on, on that point, Steve, and I think this is where, um, like I'll say that I think some people that even have been labeled as prosperity gospel teachers have been put in a bad light is again a contextual thing because using verses like these without proper understanding it's like like the the scriptures actually speak to a prosperity in christ the prosperity in god like i i have great things that i desire for you there's things that i want for you however things in that will that will make my name great right it's it's this testimony of god's goodness the prosperity component of like, okay, like God's not saying you got to be broke. He's not saying you can't have be a millionaire. He's not saying those things. But is it glor- is you getting finances all about you or is it about what I can get to you and through you, through your resources? And I think that sometimes you you're when you go and you preach to a demographic of people that maybe they're low income and you preach that to them, now you have a whole bunch of people without proper context, thinking, well, man, yeah, God, yes, I do want all my bills paid. Yes, God, I want all my, it's just like, well, yes, God does, at the truth, at the, this may smash some things for some people. God does not care about your bills being paid. He does not care about your bills being paid. He cares about your life, him being glorified through your life, regardless of your circumstances. And and I think this has an application because uh, what it reminds me of is uh, it's not all that dissimilar to Psalm thirty seven four, which says, "Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart." But this uh, there's a similar kind of aspect to it. And I once heard this described in a conversation. To give credit, I didn't come up with this on my own. Um, it was a friend of mine in a conversation with a skeptic, and the skeptic had brought this up as almost like a, a proof text against Christianity. You know, Jesus says. If you ask anything in my name, and the Psalms say that if you trust and delight in the Lord, he will give you the desires of your heart. And and my friend Jonathan just kind of responded and said, well, if you are so in line with the work of the Spirit, and you are in so in tune with Jesus, the desires of your heart are going to be the desires of Jesus's heart. 
They're going yes. to be kingdom minded. And therefore yep. you are going to be asking for kingdom things. Exactly. And, and if you are, if the desires of your heart are focused on the world, and I think this is kind of what you were saying, Troy, then that is a sign that you do not truly take delight in the Lord. You take delight in yourself. You're storing up storehouses on earth, not storehouses in heaven. And I, I so I think we can take a, a, a spiritual theological interpretation of this and say, you know, Jesus, if we are fully, um, you know, in tune, as First Peter 3 says, uh, uh, but in your hearts revere Christ as Lord, if we're doing that, then we're going to be asking different things in a different way than someone who does not have that spirit who is orienting their life. Yeah. Yeah, that's really well said. Thank you guys so much for tuning in today's episode. I I know I'm leaving encouraged. I know I'm leaving just with some better under understanding. I think it is really important for us to yeah, to be challenged in the way we look at the scripture, right? And this obviously isn't an exhaustive conversation. We could we could keep going and we really would keep going. I think at some point this is this almost feels like it would be a really cool series for us to do periodically. Let's pull out some more scripture let's find some other verses some some things or you know things that the bible actually doesn't say but christians love to say so if you have any of those things feel free to send us an email at info at apologeticscanada.com that would be really really cool to hear from you but again the ac podcast is a ministry apologetics canada so we're always looking for supporters we're always looking for partners so if you are someone who's interested you know where to reach us you can head to the website send us an email and join us next week as we find more things to think about till then love god love people bye for now